And someone once told me time is a flat circle. If everything we've ever done or will do, we're gonna do over and over and over again. Hello, I am Kelly. And I'm Mark. We are brother and sister armchair detectives all in for March Madness. Holla! And we're your hosts of the Flat Circle Podcast. Now, when you think of serial killers, who is the first one that usually pops to your mind? Ooh, that's a tough one. There's uh, so many famous ones to choose from. But uh, if I had to guess, I would say for tonight's episode, we're talking Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer. And the thing about Jeffrey Dahmer is he was one of the first bad guys besides the guy who took Adam. He was one of the first bad guys that I recall learning about. And I, I, it's like I recall it like it was yesterday. Right. I remember hearing his name on television and it was one on on one of these like daytime talk shows. Oprah, Phil Donahue, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, Ricky Lake, whatever was like available um, in the early 90s. One of them. Right. They were interviewing one of the victims and I believe it was the one who got away. Terry Edwards. He detailed some of the horrifying things that happened to him. And we fully intend to explore the mind and the madness behind those things, behind the human being who was known as the Milwaukee monster, the Milwaukee cannibal himself, Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. Hungry anybody? Let's get into it. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to father Lionel Herbert Dahmer and mother Joyce Annette Dahmer. He was the oldest of two. His brother David has since changed his name because he wishes to live a life in peace. He wants to be away from the media attention and he wants to be away from any association at all to his brother Definitely can't blame him there. In the early years, Lionel, Jeffrey's dad, he would be away from home often because he was a research scientist and former chemistry student at Marquette University. Mom Joyce was said to be an angsty woman. She was depressed. She had postpartum depression. She was anxious. She was a hypochondriac. And oftentimes she found herself in squabbles with the neighbor and with Jeffrey's dad, Lionel. Now, the opinion of Jeffrey's childhood goes back and forth. Some people say that he was given a lot of attention and love when he was little, while other people say he was sorely neglected and, as a result, suffered from attachment issues. His father, Lionel, noted a change in Jeffrey after a hernia surgery that he had at four years old. His father surmised at the time that Maybe Jeffrey had an adverse reaction to the anesthesia, but 
reportedly he was not the same little boy after coming out from under the surgical knife in fact jeffrey grew increasingly quiet secluded closed off and lonely in 1994 lionel wrote a book about jeffrey's childhood his ex-wife joyce's mental health issues are listed in there and basically the whole experience from his perspective his marriage his journey i guess as a father and everything having to do with his thought on why jeffrey turned out to be the monster that he did in fact he even reported to the police shortly after jeffrey had been caught that his son had been molested by a neighbor at eight years old wait a minute so originally he thinks that this all started after jeffrey had a surgery at four years old and now out of the woodworks after his son gets caught with all this he was molested at eight years old and he doesn't do anything as a father hashtag red flag <laughs> hashtag red flag indeed and i have to ask fcp listeners could that have been a trigger for Jeffrey's killer behavior, what do you guys think? Now, from Lionel's book, Jeffrey's childhood was fraught with hearing angry and intense arguments between his parents. His father was emotionally unavailable and he just wasn't home often. And his mom, she had her own set of issues. She had postpartum depression. She had anxiety. She was a walking hypochondriac. And it seemed like Jeffrey was kind of left to deal with his emotions, his curiosities, his social issues on his own. Now, fast forward to Jeffrey's formative years as a high schooler. And while he was a weird kid, indeed, because not too many kids want to take up taxidermy at a young age, he kind of also flipped the script by drinking which kind of loosened his inhibitions and he was being like a dorky class clown of sorts right and so his friends and of course i lose use this term loosely his friends at the time found him to be entertaining and cool because he was not of the normal energy but of course they didn't know about his killer animal hobby not to mention he was living his life as a gay teen his father, Lionel, noted in the book that Jeffrey came out as gay or tried to tell his father that he had these feelings towards men. And his father being like a fundamental Christian, you know, of fundamental Christian faith was really not on board with this at all. And Jeffrey, knowing what we know now about his mom you know, kind of having her own issues to deal with, his dad being emotionally unavailable. He's he's going through puberty. He's weird anyways. He's he's kind of like regressing. He he's retracting himself from society. And now he's going through puberty and he has sexual feelings and urges. And he's getting That's mixed right. signals. That's right. All gas and no brakes. In 1978, this was the year of Jeffrey Dahmer's first murder. Now, let's take a look at what he was dealing with at the time. His parents had just gotten 
a divorce. His mom took brother David and hightailed it the fuck out of there. Jeffrey's absent father continued to be woefully absent, seemingly not seeing his son for a month at a time. And then, of course, Jeffrey, with all of this free time, no family around, no structure. And they really didn't give him a ton of that, it seems, anyway. So he's dealing with abandonment. He's masking it with alcohol. And one day, he's driving down a road. And he sees a buff gentleman jogging. Jeffrey Dahmer, folks, just driving down this country road. And he sees what would be, what will eventually be his first victim, Stephen Hicks. Jeffrey decides at this point that he wants to put his time and effort into bodybuilding because he knows that he wants to attract a mate. He's just not really sure how to do it. And if so, of course, you know, building the body would be the first step. And he kind of thrived on this. Now, 18-year-old Stephen Hicks had just graduated from Coventry High School, and he had his whole life ahead of him. And he was excited to see a rock concert on the night of his murder, which is sad because he never got to see that rock concert. A fun night with friends was what he was supposed to have, but Stephen Hicks would never get to see that night. Friends and family describe him as compassionate and kind. Jeffrey Dahmer picked up Stephen Hicks while he was hitchhiking his way to the concert. And at the time, Jeffrey had promised Stephen that he would drive him to the concert in Ohio. So, you know, obviously Stephen was like, hell yeah, man, got in the car, let's go. Jeffrey's like, yeah, let's go have a few beers in my house, blow off some steam, lift some weights. You're fit, I'm fit, let's make it a thing. So they went to Jeffrey's house where... Stephen would later on be looking at the, the clock and be like, let's go, man. We got to go to this concert. He demanded to leave and he was going to leave either way. Either Jeffrey would take him to the concert as promised or he'd hitchhike and he'd find another ride. So when Stephen demanded to leave and said he was going to leave and started making his way out the door, that is when Jeffrey Dahmer hit him with a 10 pound weight back of the body. Wham, knocked him out, killed him. He then raped the body, cut it up into pieces, pulverized it, and buried it in the backyard for memories. Now, after the first kill, Dahmer was forced to join the army at the request of his father. And he was in the army from 1979 to 1981. In 1981, he was discharged for drunken disorderly behavior. Now, shortly after that, he tried to go to college, but he failed out, again, due to alcohol. He was just drunk all the time, missing classes, etc. Dahmer's mother was out of the picture, and his father was at absolute wit's ends, and so then the decision was made by the father to send him with his grandmother. Maybe she could give him some structure. However, in 1985, Jeffrey Dahmer started frequenting gay bathhouses where he would drug and rape the men. And get this shit, folks. He was only ever charged twice. And both charges were for indecent exposure. He was never, ever charged with the drugging and the raping of those men. So hold on, hold on. I want to clarify something on that, though. He was only ever charged twice. He was at gay bathhouses, right? Yes. So can you really call it indecent exposure if you're all there for the same thing? I know. So either he had a really good lawyer <laughs> or 
that's just the way that the cookie crumbled when it came to raping men. And that is so sad. That is so incredibly sad. Now, in September of 1987, Jeffrey Dahmer picked up his second victim, Stephen Toomey. He beat this young man to death, but reported later that he blacked out during the process and didn't even remember it. All he knew is that he went back to the hotel room with Toomey. They were having some sexy time. The next morning, he wakes up. Instead of giving him a, the man a kiss, he's faced with the dead body staring right back into his eyes. At that point, Jeffrey Dahmer began a killing spree. From the years of 1987 to 1991, Dahmer continued killing young men. He went on a total killing spree. In 1987, he killed one man in 1988. He killed two men. In 1989, he killed one man until 1990 when he escalated and killed four men that year. Also in 1990, he sexually fondled a 13-year-old boy at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory that he was working at. Motherfucker got a measly five years of probation for that act. His reign of terror continued as he killed one young man a week in 1991 until that fateful day, the one who managed to get away, Tracy Edwards. On July 22nd of 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer lured Tracy Edwards back to his apartment with the promise of money for sex. Edwards was forced into Dahmer's bedroom with a butcher knife to find a complete horror of a bloody mattress, plastic drums with human remains breaking down in acid, pictures of dismembered and mutilated bodies. Now, Edwards managed to escape Jeffrey's apartment and he immediately, like, flagged down a police officer. And when the officers walked into Jeffrey's apartment, they not only saw the horror, they smelled it too. Something that the residents had been complaining about and smelling from day one when Jeffrey moved into that apartment. And if that wasn't bad enough, as if bodies in a vat of acid wasn't bad enough. The icing on the horror-filled cake came in the form of a human head dismembered, wrapped up in saran wrap in the fridge waiting to be eaten. On January 30th of 1992, this bitch was finally put on trial. He was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences, which added up, which adds up to be about like 957 years of imprisonment without parole. Well, the fates made sure that Dahmer didn't have to wait long at all to get out of prison because on November 28th, 1994, he was brutally beaten to death by fellow inmate Christopher Carver Sr., who also then took the liberty to beat the bejesus out of another inmate, Jesse Anderson. And when Christopher Carver Sr. was asked, why did you kill Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson? Christopher Carver Sr. simply responded, because God told me to. Thus ending the existence of one Milwaukee monster, Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. And they never saw him again. So I, this, I mean, clearly like all roads lead to this 
creepy, weird asshole, right? You know, there's been a lot of stuff on Dahmer lately, especially with um, the Netflix um, miniseries coming out. And, you know, it really opened up my eyes to the whole thing. Um, Not only to just kind of see how twisted he was, but to see what a twisted life he came from. And, you know, my, my opinion when I first watched it, you know, the first couple episodes is, you know, shame on the father for not being around when he was younger. But, I mean, hell, the man stood by his side the entire time when going through everything and just that's that's powerful stuff. Yeah, I know. And his dad was like, well, he was molested when he was eight. Could that be the reason for all the craziness? And I feel like it was almost like the perfect storm, right? Because I'm over here and, and you know how I've been like looking at and studying astrology and kind of matching it up with events and, you know, all that fun stuff, right? Yeah, black magic, yeah. (laughs) Whatever. So what's interesting here about his chart is he actually has his North Node in Leo in the 10th house, right? And he has his South Node. um, His South Node is in the 4th house and it's in Aquarius. And I noticed that in the eighth house. So the eighth house is typically a the house that is like ruled by the planet Pluto. And Pluto is all about death and destruction and, you know, rebirth. It's all about like affairs and like hot, steamy sex and like um, taxes and, and inheritance and all of this stuff. Right. He has got both his son and his Mercury um, in the eighth house. And his fucking part of fortune is in the third house. It It's in Scorpio. And not to mention, he also has like a prominence degree in Neptune, also in the third house. So Neptune is kind of like a malefic sort of planet. And malefic just means like Neptune is all about dreams and um, addictions and stuff like that. Now, what I also thought was really interesting is he has the fame degree in his chart. So I believe he was always meant to get some kind of public recognition. And obviously, this was meant to come to fruition, right? But when I look at his Pluto, it is like in the 12th house. And typically, when you see Pluto in the 12th house, Pluto in the 12th house is for like celebrities and kings and like high level people. But again, Pluto is also or in the 12th house is also about secrets, the cult, mystery, Etc. And I'm just looking at his chart in all of the the you know where the main um, sign is in the house, and he just everything is just like a mixture of shit energy, like elements that just don't go well together. And what's interesting is like I'm looking at his chart, and I'm like, I wonder if it was destined for him to do this. It was also at like a life path six, right? Which is supposed to be someone who comes to this planet to experience love, to give love. And he had no idea what love even was. And finally, just one more thing about his astrology chart: his Chiron is in Taurus. And it is in the seventh house of partnerships, which means those abandonment wounds, those attachment issues, the losses um, and stuff like that. I feel like that Chiron, that abandonment and coupled with all the other like weird shit that happened in his life 
like almost made it destiny. Like, I don't think that this was fated to happen, like him going on a killing spree. I definitely feel like all of the energies were right, though. And his chart was just like ripe for it, you know? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I, I was thinking all the all that, too. <laughs> so you pulled up the chart. I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It matches mine. You're like, oh, yeah, totes. I totes was thinking that, too. <laughs> no, no. No, as far as, you know, when I think about this case, um, you know, the horrible tragedies that happened, I... You know, his upbringing is one thing, but it's just amazing to show how alcohol um, was such a problem in his life. And I wonder if that alcohol was a way for that to let those demons escape. Um, It's just the whole thing is just amazing, really. I mean, it's it's sick. It's twisted, um, but just very interesting. Um, Yeah, extremely interesting. Yeah, it really is. It it makes you wonder about nature versus nurture and what events in our lives are fated to happen and what events in our lives happen because it's the right time, the right place, and all of the right energies are there to make it happen, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one thing I think is very interesting is father is still alive. Um, so oh, I, I watched, didn't know that. Yeah. So I watched um, the Netflix documentary or uh, miniseries. And uh, afterwards, I was like, well, I wonder whatever happened to his father. I looked it up. Yeah, the man's still alive. He lives somewhere in Wisconsin with his wife. And he still stands by his son. Now, I can't imagine that he continues to like to talk about this. But, you know, even in the in the miniseries, you know, you get to separate fact from fiction. But I think one fact that was true is that he always stood by his son. And that's, I guess, if you're going to pull any good out of it, I guess that would be good. It just shows you that. Shows you that um, Blood definitely is thicker than water. Well, and I wonder if that's kind of his way as well as a father taking responsibility for the things that happen. You know, you don't kids don't come with instruction manuals, right? Like none of us did. We're all just kind of thrown in this this planet, crazy planet called Earth and told just to figure it out. And we always expect that the ones that come before us the ones who are, we always look at these people as the ones who are supposed to protect us, you know, the ones who are supposed to make everything right for us. And when you grow up in the kind of environment that Jeffrey Dahmer did with all of the energies that he had had, and you can see just the, the direct, the wounds between death and rebirth and and just not really having that attachment to his mother or his father, not having a good understanding of like what love is. And I mean, Jeffrey, he's for sure a monster, like no question about it and definitely not. But like somewhere inside. And I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Mark. I mean, yes, as a parent, I would be like fry his ass. Like if anybody ever did some shit to me and my to my children i am not kidding i would fucking exact vigilante justice because that's my family 
And I'm very protective over my family, over my people, right? Like if you're in my circle, you're my family. And with Jeffrey, it was like he was here. Like that was his whole, like if you believe that we're all, you know, numbers and mathematical sequences and source and all of this shit, you know, Jeffrey was here to learn love and he he learned it the opposite of it. But he, it wasn't like he learned to hate, you know, that wasn't even what I get from Jeffrey, even though he was like very um, just weird and like diabolical, I also didn't get necessarily the feeling that he hated anyone other than he hated himself. And I feel like when he was when he was killing those victims and eating them, it was like he was and this is just the way that I feel about it. He was trying to understand what love is. What does it mean to love another person? And for him, it just manifested in this weird, fucked up mangle funhouse of horrors, you know? Yeah. I mean, he just he really he just wanted to know what love was and he wanted someone to show him. <laughs> One thing I will say about the Netflix documentary is that Evan Peters did a phenomenal job as Jeffrey Dahmer. Like he did, he played a very complex role. He gave it just as much complexity as it needed. Like he was perfect. It was like chef's kiss. He just did such a good job to bring out the psychological part of everything. And then I can't remember the actor's name who played Jeffrey's dad. I freaking love him. I think his name might be Jeff. Maybe not. Anyway, he did an amazing job as well, showing the complexities of just the marriage, the family life, um, trying to bond with his oldest son. Because I think he that, that, that Lionel definitely felt a bond with Jeffrey because they were both of scientific mind, you know? Yeah, no, it was an, ex- it was an excellent little miniseries. Um, another one I always liked watched um, was called My Friend Dahmer, which that one was pretty good. Didn't get as good reviews. It wasn't as well done, but it, it really showed more of him in high school and just before he graduated and kind of like what he was like, the class clown kind of stuff. So, no, it, it, it was all good. Um, you know, with this whole thing, it, it's it's so funny how over time a case like this gets brought back into reality and then all this stuff comes out that people didn't know before and and back when all this happened you know that nobody was making those that wasn't well known that mental illness was not well recognized um uh, certain things that you know happened um ptsd stuff like if you if he was truly molested at eight years old um you know that stuff was not recognized he was just he was just looked at as a just a crazy just a sick man that killed people right and now in today's world looking at that it's almost like it's justified by well he had this wrong with him he had this wrong with him he had this wrong with him that's why he was the way he was it almost makes you wonder if they had what we have now back when all this was going on would this have ever happened That's a really interesting question. I think what I would say to that, because I really like where your thoughts are going with that. I think for me, I'm looking at his home life and his home environment and being left to his own devices so often is what it seems like that he just kind of like went from, you know, obviously not an an anxious attachment, but like avoiding attachment with people like I feel like he almost like internalized it, but he couldn't understand it either. It's a hell of a thing. 
reach out. We love hearing from you. You can hit us up on social media at Flat Circle Podcast, Facebook and Instagram, or send an email to Flat Circle Podcast one at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We are so grateful for you all. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We hope that you found us 